welcome back to the program. When we speak of death and sickness, it's often as if we're engaged in the language of war. We're battling, fighting, staving off. Perhaps we best think of it in the language from Death Be Not Proud, the 17th century poem by John Donne. Let's listen to Emma Thompson recite some of that poem. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with poison, war, and sickness dwell. And poppy, or charms, can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellst thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. All of this clearly before the advent of the medical-industrial complex. And that subject, the nature of how we deal with death, is what we're going to talk about today with my guest, Katie Butler. Her articles have appeared in The New Yorker, The Best American Science Writing, and The Best American Essays. Her article for The New York Times Magazine, What Broke My Father's Heart, was one of the most commented on articles in the history of the magazine. It is my pleasure to welcome Katie Butler here to talk about her new book, Knocking on Heaven's Door, The Path to a Better Way of Death. Katie Butler, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jeff. Delight to have you here. Is there something that is just inherent in our culture, in our society, that that really prevents us from understanding a different way to look at those final years, those final days even, with respect to death? I think there is something very special going on. I think human beings have always had a terror of death, but we developed religions and traditions that helped us cope with that fear and to actually spiritually prepare ourselves for death. Up until about the 1800s, these traditions were very alive in the West. It wasn't just the Tibetan Book of the Dead. But... In the 1960s, our terror of death collided with amazing technological advances in medicine. And the result has been kind of a witch's brew. There's an interesting irony in all of this, in that as a country at least, we profess to be, and certainly surveys indicate, that there is such a religious bent and yet at the same time, none of that applies to, to understanding and accepting and preparing for, as you say, the reality of death. Yes, I'm very puzzled by this because there was such a strong uh, Christian tradition, at least. Um, books were written in the 1400s called The Art of Dying, quite literally, and they were very, very popular. People, people actually had a whole litany and the virtuous person was the person who accepted that death was God's will. 
and understood that they couldn't necessarily understand God's will, that they accepted it, and they trusted that they were going to go to heaven. And and somehow we've totally lost that that sense. And I think what happened in the 60s was that we became so adept at life-saving, which obviously was in some ways an absolutely wonderful thing, but we also pretty much abolished natural death and sudden death from the picture. It's very, very hard these days to die suddenly or naturally because of the 911 system and because of all everything from chemotherapy to intensive care units. So even though three-quarters of Americans say they want to die at home, fewer than a quarter of people actually do die at home. It's it's very curious to me, this question that you're raising. I don't really understand it, um, why people who are deep in religious traditions now are so unlikely to feel comfortable with dying. In many ways, it seems that it has to do with the language we use, the way in which we have become conditioned to talk about this, and part of that is as a result, I suppose, of, of medical advances, and maybe even the result of, of of efforts within the medical community to inculcate this language. The idea of battling of disease or yeah. fighting, or it's it's it all this this yeah. kind of war metaphor. Yeah, 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 it is, and I suppose in some contexts that's appropriate if you're a 30-year-old who's just been in a major car crash and you're rushed to the emergency room, your life quite possibly will be saved in a way that it never could have been saved in 1940. And so maybe in that context, everybody battling to save your life is really appropriate. But when you're in your 70s, 80s, or 90s, and the entire body is slowly collapsing and the resilience is lost, it just... It's it's not a fit for the circumstances. I don't really know how else to say it. I mean, you certainly talk about this in a very personal way when you talk about your father who had a stroke at 79, 80 years old and then had a pacemaker installed on top of that and lived till 85 but with a pretty poor quality of life. With a really terrible quality of life for the last three years or so. It was very heartbreaking to watch this man that I loved so deeply, who had been a vigorous, exciting college professor who loved to argue and talk, and to watch him become to the point where he didn't know the purpose of a dinner napkin and couldn't name all of his children was absolutely tragic. And to know that on top of that, one of the reasons that he was living into those terrible years was that he had this little device that was continually cueing his heart to keep going. What did the doctors say? When you, when you talk to doctors about all of this, what did they say in terms of justification for things like giving that pacemaker to your father that kept him alive on the one hand, but again with a pretty poor quality of life? Doctors fall all over the map on these questions, and a lot of them in their own health care refuse all of these extraordinary measures that they think they have to offer to all their patients, which I think is very interesting. So some doctors say, we have to offer all this because we might get sued for not offering it. Some doctors say, I've tried to have a conversation with families about doing less rather than more in that last chapter of life, 
and they take their elderly relative off to another doctor because they don't want to hear the reality that the end is near. There's a whole movement in medicine called palliative care, which is really trying to address some of these this terrible um, sort of it's this terrible kind of greased shoot to a bad death that a lot of people get on. And then there are people like my father's cardiologist who who don't seem. I mean, we. I don't think it's the fault of individual doctors. We have a medical system that is extremely fragmented, and that financially rewards a lot of bad decision-making and punishes good decision-making. So in the case of my father's cardiologist, he was looking very narrowly at my father's heart, and he didn't know my father. I mean, they had two meetings total at the point where the pacemaker went in. So he's looking very narrowly at my father's heart, and he basically said, well, you've got a slow heartbeat, you need a hernia surgery, there's a risk that your heart might stop during general anesthesia, so we're going to put in a pacemaker first before I will clear you for the hernia surgery. So what seemed like a very minor decision and was dealt with like a very minor medical decision actually had huge long-range implications because the device had a 10-year battery life and you're putting it in a guy of 80 who can barely speak, who's miserable, and a year later says to my mother, I'm living too long. So I think what happens, and and this I think is really important for um, listeners to understand, is that what seem like very, very tiny decisions end up having major, major implications that are not addressed at the time they go in. And, 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 sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, that there was an attempt in Obamacare to put in a $200 payment so that people could actually have deep discussions with their with their doctors about their wishes for the ends of their lives. And this was distorted as death panels and um, had to be stripped from the bill or it would have killed the bill. So I think I'm really hoping that the book helps people develop a more meaningful language to start to grapple with these questions because they're very deep and because of the strength of the medical technologies, almost everybody is going to have to deal with them either by directly addressing them or if you avoid addressing them, that is also going to affect your future. Is it a generational issue to a certain extent? Do we have a generation of baby boomers, of which we are part of, that just can't let go, that that has to to hang on to the last possible moment? I don't know if this is a baby boomer problem. When I was dealing with my parents, I felt that my parents were much more deferent to their doctors than I am. You know, my parents were not people who used the Internet and came up with something and then went to the doctor and said, well, what about this, right? And I think baby boomers have always questioned authority and that they do tend to do that. So I'm I'm wondering. I'm I'm very curious to see what happens. I, I don't think it's a generational question like that. I think it's more a question of are we willing to reclaim our moral authority and approach death in the way that we choose it rather than the terms that the medical, the overall medical structure is presenting us with choices. So I, I don't think it's strictly baby boomers. I think it's more like American culture. We have enormous faith in technology to solve all kinds of problems. And often we allow technologies to 
to run us rather than us running the technologies. So similar to the cell phone, you know, the cell phone can run your life or you can run your cell phone and life-saving medical technology can dictate to you how you're going to die or you can reclaim your ability to make choices about it. But beyond technology, there's also a kind of worship, a kind of of almost religious quality to the idea of longevity. Yes. Yes, I think we've put longevity on an altar. And it's not very realistic because people over 85 are now the most rapidly growing age group. Half of them need some help with activities of daily living and a third of them have dementia. And I really wonder, considering there is no cure for dementia anywhere close to on the horizon, we don't even understand the causes fully, why are we pushing people to live into a time when their chances of developing dementia just get better and better? Why do you think we are? Well, I think it's a combination of very, very deep forces that we have millions of years of evolution that tell our brain stem to stay alive no matter what the cost. And I think we have a very deep, visceral desire to keep the people we love alive also. And I think this just has collided with the with medical advances and, unfortunately, these enormous financial incentives to over-treat close to the end of life or treat inappropriately at the close to the end of life. It also comes back around to this point we were making earlier on about what constitutes a meaningful death and yes. the degree to which there is meaning in that beyond is that all there is? Yeah. Uh, and I think this is... I, I love you using the expression a meaningful death rather than, let's say, a good death because I think the concept of a good death can be kind of tyrannical, you know, that we, that everybody is supposed to be nicey-nicey or the angels descend or whatever the image people have. But a meaningful death, I think, is possible for all of us. In the old days, when they had these art of dying traditions, it was important to, like, give your blessing to your children, to make peace with people you had conflict with, to say your last words, to forgive, to ask for forgiveness. And these are actually beautiful tasks for the end of life if we're willing to face the fact that our life is close to its end. And to me, that's what creates a meaningful death. We're very lucky these days in that medicine has created far, far better pain control at the end of life. Our ancestors talked a lot about like the death agony and the death throes, and we don't have to face that degree of physical pain now, which is wonderful, and programs like hospice and palliative care are tremendously helpful. Your mother, on the other hand, took an approach similar to what what you're talking about, where at 84 years old it was suggested she have open-heart surgery, and she said no. Exactly. And she was treated like she was some kind of a freak. I mean, she was 84, her husband was dead, the operation she was looking at had a major risk that it would have harmed her cognitively and that she could have had a stroke herself. And I later found out she had a 13% chance of actually dying in the surgery, which we didn't know at the time, given her age and condition. 
So she really contemplated the question, and then she just said, I will not do it. And I actually tried to talk her out of it at one point. I called her and said, are you sure? The surgeon said you could live to be 90. And she said very clearly, I don't want to live to be 90. Your father was my best friend. And I was just thinking about this this morning, which is that she rejected eighty to $150,000 worth of open-heart surgery in the last five months of her life. That's enough to, you know, put a child through community college. What if even a portion of that money had been spent on social work for our family during the six and a half years that she was taking care of my father almost 24-7? The other aspect is the amount of money that gets spent, the amount of effort that goes into keeping people alive for relatively short periods of time. I mean, even if she yeah. had had the surgery, what was that going to buy her? A year, two years, maybe five years? Exactly. And it's even sadder when people end up in intensive care, the amount of money that's spent. I, I talk in the book about a woman I know whose father was 88 and in dementia and developed a infection, was rushed to the hospital, ended up in the intensive care unit. His death cost $323,000 and took 10 days in intensive care. And if that money had been spent in a way that left their surviving relatives in good shape, maybe we could justify it. But the fact that not only was it expensive, but it was so harrowing for the man himself and for his surviving daughter. Given that medicine keeps advancing and that we keep coming up with new and better techniques to keep people alive and sometimes with a better quality of life, is this even a conversation that can take place in a landscape that is not fixed, that is constantly changing? You know, that's a very good point. And I feel like we're just groping for language to even discuss this in, and our old traditions never face this problem. The problem of living too long is not a problem that you find written about in the Bible or the Talmud or anywhere else that I know of. So I, I, And this is where I hope the baby boomers will really kind of pick up the baton, because we've been very good at looking at our personal lives and seeing the larger political or spiritual dimensions to the questions that face us. For example, during the 70s, there was a huge protest about the way birth had been medicalized and moved into the hospital. And there was a huge midwife movement, and part of the result was that hospitals did change their practices around birth in the hospital. It's much more humane process now than it was then. And my only hope is that as we start to really talk about this with each other, we will start to develop some language for the changes that we would like to see, and hopefully they'll get put into place. In your research and in your investigation of all of this, what, if any, connection have you found between the degree to which somebody has what, what might constitute a meaningful life, a life that, that they're comfortable uh -huh. with, and, and relating that to the way they approach death? Wow. Uh -huh. Well, I, I guess I would say sometimes there's a, a correlation and sometimes there isn't. I think it's a truism. Hospice nurses say a lot, people die the way they lived. And they also say people, everyone grieves their own way. 
But if I look at my parents, my mother definitely died the way she lived. She was a very decisive person. She would not have welcomed being dependent on anyone else or having a slow mental decline. So she really, in a way, got the death she had earned with her own realism and her willingness to face things throughout her life. But then when I look at my poor father, he also didn't believe in medical overtreatment. He'd actually refused a pacemaker a year before it was put in, you know, when he still had all his faculties and could make his own decisions. And yet he suffered a terrible stroke and a terrible death because he really lost the ability to make his own decisions or advocate for them. And we, my mother and I certainly didn't have language to discuss any of this at the time that it was first happening. And so the poor guy really had, well, I want to take that back. Even after he'd had the stroke, he did some beautiful things like write me absolutely beautiful letters and receive absolutely beautiful letters from me that allowed us to reclaim the beautiful open love that the two of us had had when I was, let's say, five or six years old when he taught me to read and we were very, very close. So even though he was severely damaged, he did use the end of his life to, to make peace with me and give me his blessing in a way that was very meaningful to me. And that period where he was gravely disabled, I really had an opportunity to also express my love and caring for him and help him out in ways that have left me with more confidence about my own ability to love and to express love to other people. So I think it's kind of a mixed bag. There's a lot of, unfortunately, there's a lot of randomness in life and in, in, in death. And we... However well we try to engineer this, we're not going to produce some kind of perfect death where we die at exactly the right moment, having said exactly the right things. Everyone that I know who's taken care of an aging parent has had some regrets, whether it's regretting doing too little or regretting doing too much. I think, again, it's kind of like when you go to the airport, you have to, like, surrender control. You know, you're just on someone else's timetable, and I think death is like that, too. The other aspect that that it always comes back to, I suppose, and and it relates to the language discussion and and some of the other things we've been talking about, is the importance of, and and the difficulty at the same time, of having these discussions early, before it's too late to have the discussion. And and that's where it comes back around again to, to the whole cultural aspect because yeah. we have this this idea, this this positive reinforcement in our culture, that simply to talk about these things is to somehow embrace them. You're right, or even worse than embrace them, to invite them. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the whole theory of the power of positive thinking, and uh, people people have taken that to such an extreme that they believe that taking away hope is the worst thing you can do for someone. And the palliative care doctors like to say a lot. There's, there is hope. It's not hope that you're going to live forever. It's hope that the, you're going to be cared for and that your death is going to have meaning and you're going to be protected and loved in the course of your dying. That's a very different kind of hope than putting someone on the fourth or fifth um, line of chemotherapy that the, that, the, that the doctor knows has almost no chance of doing anything good and may in fact harm. That's a, that's a very different type of hope. So I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you raised this because people, I hear people say constantly things like, 
well, when I get like that, just take me out to the field and shoot me. Or they say, I want to just die in my sleep suddenly. And I find myself wanting to say, you know, take me out to the field and shoot me is not a plan. And if you don't have a plan, you will become a victim of someone else's plan. Unfortunately, and in the old days, you could simply embrace your death, put your hands over your heart, and say, God, I'm ready to take, you know, please take me. That's no longer the case. To what extent has the care industry, even beyond medicine, that there's a whole industry and a whole business in taking care of people in these stages that is beyond, for example, the palliative care that you're talking about, to what extent is that part of the equation? No, I I see a bias in the system where we over-reward high-tech fixes and we under-reward care. For example, in my father's case, $22,000 was spent in one year repairing his hernia and giving him a pacemaker. But he was restricted to $1,500 in reimbursement for speech therapy, which actually was one of the best things that happened to him in that period. So I think there's a bias here. I think we underpay home health care workers. I don't think I, I don't think there's a lobby in Washington devoted to sending you know, keeping people alive into their dotage so that they are they can be, you know, business for the home health industry. But I do believe that there are forces at play that find our current high tech approach to the end of life, this fighting of death to the utmost extremely profitable. The pacemaker business is very profitable. Defibrillators are very profitable. The companies that make feeding tubes and intensive care unit equipment are all very profitable. And specialists who work in those high-tech, fix-everything ends of the business, a medical business, make, you know, $450,000, $500,000 a year, whereas the family family caregivers and the family doctors make the least of any of the medical specialties. Is it your sense that the economic imperative plays a significant role in all of these issues that we've been talking about? Does, Does that underlie it to a large extent in your view? I do. I feel like in the course of writing the book, I started to see it. It's almost like a shadow puppet play that we don't see that's just behind the screen. The medical reimbursement system is designed in such a way that it shapes and rewards doctors for doing the wrong thing, and it punishes doctors financially for doing the right thing. Palliative care doctors earn very little. Hospice is underpaid. An oncologist who recommends a chemotherapy gets a 6% bonus for the price of the chemotherapy, so he's actually financially rewarded better if he prescribes an expensive chemotherapy, whether or not it's effective. But if he wants to have a long conversation with a family and say, look, we're really close to the end of the road, let's consider hospice, I could do another round of chemo, but it's, you know, chances are very slight, he'll be basically financially punished for doing that. And it's just like the home, you know, we have a home mortgage deduction, and that shapes people's behavior. And all of these hidden incentives and disincentives in medicine also, unfortunately, shape the behavior of the doctors. What it does, in in looking back at what we've been talking about, is it just 
you, you see that there are so many roadblocks along the way. There's the economic imperative, the cultural aspect, yeah. the religious aspect, the political yeah. aspect. There are so many forces allied against finding new approaches to this that, it, that it's hard to imagine that we're, we're ever going to get it right. Yes, and what I really encourage people to do is there's a hospice doctor named Ira Bayok who says the important tasks of the end of life are thank you, I love you, please forgive me, I forgive you, and goodbye. And my belief is we can start that with our aging relatives or our aging spouses at any time. We don't have to wait to sit down and say, I think it's time you filled out an advance directive or you got a DNR. You can start repairing and cleaning up the end of your relationship with someone without even discussing the end of life. For example, with my dad, I started writing him what I consider legacy letters where I thanked him for all the blessings he had really brought into my life. And these were very tender letters, and I'm sure they helped me get to a point where I could advocate for him in a way that really made sense rather than overly prolonging his life. Katie Butler, the book is Knocking on Heaven's Door, A Path to a Better Way of Death. Katie, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this, and I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take Bye-bye. a break. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 